I'm Jason Bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting Conversations on Contemporary Art and Culture in Los Angeles and Beyond. Before we go into today's episode, I wanted to say thank you for everyone for continuing to listen to the show, but also I'm sorry for taking so long to get these episodes out. It's been a few months since the last one. I am hiring an editor now to go through these episodes as I record them and uh, get them out to you in a a better pace. Being that, I'm going to need support from you as a community, and there will be ways to actually help support uh, the editing of these episodes in the near future. The upcoming eight episodes include Amir H. Falah, today's episode Anna Sue Hoy, curator Andriana Campbell, artist Dave McDermott, artist Ethan Greenbaum, artist Jason Revoke, the landscape architect Ken Smith, and the director of curatorial affairs at the Brooklyn Museum, Sharon Matt Atkins. We have a really rich group of individuals and some amazing interviews that are long overdue for the people who took the time to actually sit down and speak with me, but also for you guys to actually hear what's going on. So today's episode is Anna Sue Hoy. Anna was one of those conversations where I look back and I'm like, holy moly. As soon as I got done, I felt energized and wanting to make work. You may have heard me say this before. I don't have a lot of sculptors on because I'm picky as hell when it comes to sculptors, being a sculptor. But Anna's work I have looked at for a very long time and known but not known her. So having her in the studio and being able to broach subjects of content and formalism and understanding where she comes from was just a, a pure joy for me. Thank you, Anna, for taking the time to be on the show. Without further ado, here's Anna Suhoy. Thank you for coming on to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. I take notes on everybody before they come in. Okay. Maybe we can start by just talking about where you're from and the background of how you got to where you are today. So you were born in New Zealand. I was born in New Zealand and both sides of my family are from New Zealand. We moved to the States when I was three. I consider myself American, but I was born in New Zealand, so I'm also a New Zealander, but probably more American. And I grew up in Santa Monica. Did your parents move directly from New Zealand to California? Via Exeter in England, so not direct. What were they doing? Um, my father was doing his, his medical residency to become a surgeon. And in New Zealand, the country is so small. They, he was one of two students in his field that year to be educated as an orthopedic surgeon. So he had to go out of the country to finish his his residencies. So we went to Exeter for about a year and then we went to Santa Monica. And then after the year uh, of him doing residency at uh, UCLA or USC or both or something like that, he ended up being offered a job. And then after a lot of discussion, my parents decided to stay. So that's uh, how I ended up in Santa Monica. You went to school here uh-huh. up until going to college. Mm-hmm. Did you want to be a studio artist this whole time, or what were you thinking? I did not know. I, When I was a kid, I played the violin. I played classical violin from about 6 to about 18. Oh, that's a long time. A very long time. So you were good. I was good, probably. I was at the peak for my age in middle school, and then once adolescence hit, my focus really faltered and also my belief in what I was doing in terms of what I didn't want to play other people's songs basically so (laughs) classical music is a lot about digesting a piece of music and finding ways to kind of innovate and express within that piece of music but it sounds very constricted yeah it wasn't enough yeah. For me, but I think it's enough for a lot of people, and I, that means that they can find more, you know, things in the music. But I, I was not. Just a simple question about classical. I don't know a lot about classical music or classical musicians. Could you have not done classical and still played violin, or gone in a different direction? It just wasn't in your purview. Um, I mean, there's different reasons why I ended up stopping 
with music in general. Yeah. I mean, at the time, I think classical music represented something, and I just... Were you rebelling? Needed to, yeah, <laughs> basically. I know <laughs> that feeling. Long story it's short. Yeah, you're rebelling. You're like, no, mom and dad, yeah. I am not going to play violin the rest of my life. But the thing I do say about having played violin so seriously for so many years is that I really understand what a daily practice is. Which is so important, right? I mean, when I was 13, I was practicing 90 minutes a day. Oh, that's a lot. For, for a 13-year-old, it's a lot. And you have, you have kids, so you know the attention span of a child. <laughs> well, I ha- yeah, they're, se- they're not quite 13. My older daughter is seven and a half, almost eight. But My son's eight. Yeah, she be eight. wanted to quit yeah. vi- piano after a year. This and is exactly like, okay. where we're at with my son, too. I don't want to turn it into a fight like what happened with me. So, <laughs> I'm, so are you going to let her? Yeah, she, we, she did piano for a year, and then we talked about it, and she decided that she wants to stop lessons. Does she want to do something said, else okay. instead, like an alternative or not? She enrolled in a Saturday art class. That's nice. So, yeah, yeah it's that's fine. really nice. I think it's, I mean, obviously my approach with her is different than... Well, you're going to be the, the opposite of what your parents did to you, maybe a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to be the opposite. I just want to listen to her in the moment and respond. This is how my wife and I, she's very smart about how she lets the children sort of, if they're feeling that, then they can continue to do that if they want to, but they don't have to. We're not going to force them to go do something that they don't want to do. But with my son, we can see that he has an affinity toward music and he really enjoys it. It's just that practice thing. Yeah. And I have also friends who've said, I wish my parents forced me to practice. I I feel that way. So... I mean, this is not about art, but maybe it is. It's about it's about practice, I guess. It was a huge fight with my parents in the moment when I was quitting because they had invested so much in it. And I think I was kind of doing it for them. I am actually, in the end, my art benefits because I have this, you know, so many years lived experience of practicing. It helped my studio practice a lot. I was talking to my children about uh, life drawing last night, and I was showing them how to do it. And I drew a picture of my son first, and I haven't, I came, when I went to grad school, I was a portrait painter. So I have, but I'm a better draftsman than I am a painter. So I drew the picture of my son, and it was horrible. And I I haven't drawn forever. And then I drew the picture of my daughter, and it was much better. But I was explaining to them that if you don't practice and you haven't been doing things, your ability to sort of complete them, even if you did them for a very long time before, isn't as good as what it could be. And just those two things, showing them the before and after photos of those two things, sort of like it hit home. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great moment. To show them that, I, I don't think they're six and eight. I don't think it's going to sink in quite the way. <laughs> it all adds. It it's, all. Yeah, it's cumulative, right? Mm-hmm. You decided not to do music, but did you know then that you wanted to, you did probably didn't have a direction that you wanted to specifically go or did you know art was something that you were interested in? No, I didn't know. Then kind of taking these um, figure sculpting, not figure drawing, but figure sculpting classes after school. I was really into them because I liked being able to like, it was like all this hand-eye coordination stuff, but it didn't have to do with violin. It was like applying these things in a different way. But I didn't think of myself as an artist until uh, somebody, after, you know, like a couple years of doing this, somebody in, in the class said, oh, you're really good at this. You should, maybe you should be an artist. <laughs> and I had never thought about it before, but just that person saying it so casually made me think about it. And then I realized, oh, maybe I should be an artist. Um, and then I applied to art school kind of on this like figure portfolio of sculpture, sculpture figure? Yeah, and then I was also doing some figure drawing as well. Like in high school, my high school didn't have a lot of contemporary art. I wasn't really thinking about contemporary art, and I don't know if I was aware, that aware of what it was. I um, wasn't at that age. So my my figure, yeah, right? So I had this like idea of, to me, Rodin was like the, the best artist yeah. in the world. When I went to art school, I thought I would try to... S- be an artist like Rodin. Sort of emulate that. Not really knowing what that meant. <laughs> but then I ended up in, in Manhattan at School of Visual Arts. And like within the first week, I realized how much catching up I had to do. I do you, this is the exact same thing that happened to me. Mm-hmm. I, I'm from Iowa and I had this idea or perceived notion of what art was because I didn't understand what contemporary art was. And of course, you see these things sort of in a classical nature, or Rodin, or for me, the, the closest I had come to sort of contemporary art was a Chuck Close or uh, Klaus Oldenburg. 
the spoon with the cherry in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. right? So when I went to grad school at SVA, you went to undergrad at SVA, I went to grad school at SVA. I, the, in the first week, I had a, uh, a rude awakening. But mine wasn't undergrad, mine was grad school. So I felt even more out of water. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> the amazing thing, now that I've been looking at art for over 20 years now, is that I go back to Rodin and I realize how much he pushed and how his work really was extremely ambitious and... For the time period or just in general? I, for the time period. In what ways? Like it's not classical. Rodin, when Rodin was making his work, he was not considered classical. He was considered... The work was really ugly, was rejected, was... Too sloppy, too not refined enough? The or way what? he... I think there's so many things, but the way he approached using a mold, there's the famous three figures, which made all made... It's like basically he cast the same figure three times and put them next to each other, and that was the work. No one did that. Right. You would sculpt three, three different things. You can't just like cast it three times because and turn it's a it halfway in. yeah so in that way he was kind of like anticipating many things you know the way he used a copy so did it take you when you were looking at this stuff when you went to undergrad did you start immediately diving into stuff like that or did it take you getting into grad school and you went to oh no when i when i went to art school and i realized that how behind i was or how much i didn't know i did not continue to look at rodin i just Bailed on that. And then because I was in Manhattan, I just went to look at like 20 galleries a day in Soho because it was in the 90s. It was Soho. I, I'm lucky that I ended up in New York so I could just train my eye and under and get a quick understanding or actually a pretty deep understanding of what contemporary art was from just being out for 20 hours a day well, looking at things. This is one of those things that I had a hard time understanding until I lived in New York City and then now Los Angeles is that without being in the place where you're seeing all of this work all the time, it's hard to understand what's actually taking, taking place in contemporary art, at least for me it was. So like when I went to grad school and I lived in New York City, I was on the East Coast, so I moved from Iowa to D.C., and lived in Washington, D.C. for like six years thinking, oh, I'm going to go to the East Coast. That's where art is. I didn't realize that D.C. didn't have the arts community that New York did. I mean, obviously I did, but not in terms of understanding what I should be thinking about when I'm making work or looking at, at making work. And I think more importantly, to not be sort of reductive and make things that have already been, the thought process has already been sort of completed and to work toward getting to something new in a conversation about a piece. If that makes sense. A little bit? No? Rephrase it. <laughs> yeah. I One of the things that I was looking at when I was going to all these galleries and stuff mm -hmm. is I was thinking about a process in my own work and issues or problems that I had to solve. Uh -huh. If somebody had come before me and already been thinking about that same process, I could use that knowledge to sort of further my understanding of what I should do in that process as well, too. Because if people are having conversations about something and you're just not aware of them, I think it leaves you at a, in a, in a negative place as far as when you're trying to understand or, or produce your own things. You see this often in science too, where people are working on the same problem to try to solve it and on different pathways. But mm -hmm. when that information or knowledge is shared about the different things they're finding out at the same time, it becomes a quicker resolution to the, to the end means, right? Right. But then you have to share Yes, you have to share. Well, and this is, but this brings us into this idea of sharing as artists too, where a lot of artists are skeptical to get other people in the studio or share knowledge because people steal shit. Well, I personally have never felt like it would be bad to have people in my studio because all that feedback is really valuable. And there are moments when I'm looking at art by younger artists or other artists and I feel like or somebody will send me an image of something like hey look at this um it looks like your work something you're making yeah but I don't really worry about that because the one everybody gets an idea from something um we're either inspired by other art like when I was in art school I looked at Rachel Harrison's work for a very long time I looked at 
Lucky de Bellevue and Jessica Stockholder. And when I was making my work, those kind of their their you know I'm sure I made stuff that looked like of their stuff. So I understand just to be part of learning how to make something. Um, and I also feel like I'm grateful for having spent my 20s in New York, basically looking at art and being really part of a dialogue in a ver- where I was looking at art and talking to people about the stuff I saw and just a lot of input. And then moving to Los Angeles, I'm still involved in talking about art and looking at art, but I also am more involved in just making my own work and allowing my ideas now to come as well from the things that I made before and responding to those things. So I, I'm not like looking at art 20 hours a day like I was 20 years ago. I'm not either, but I think it becomes you get more comfortable in the work that you're making that too. You, I feel more confident in the work that I'm producing now than I did when I was in my 20s. Well, you also, I also feel like I just have to make the work I need to make. I'm here to yeah. do something, yeah, and yeah. I have a certain amount of time, and I need to spend my time. I know more what I need to do, yeah. so and I you just know, need to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't feel there is enough time mm-hmm. to be making all the stuff that I need to make in the mm-hmm. studio. In New York City, you went to undergrad at SVA, but then you went to Bard for your master's. I did, but... When I went to Bard, I had already moved back to Los Angeles. I spent four years at SVA, and then I stayed in New York for four more years, was an artist there, and then I moved back to L.A., and then it took me a few years to go back to school. And Bard was a great choice because I was already exhibiting work in Los Angeles and also in New York, but I... Did you have a gallery or not? Um, yeah, I was working, uh, my first gallery in LA was, um, Perez Projects. Oh, yeah. And then I also worked with Karen Lovegrove Gallery. Yeah. And then, uh, around that time I was, I went back to art school, um, but Bard, you just go in the summers. You were in New York for four years after undergrad. You were producing, you were an artist. Then you came back to LA. What made you want to go back to, I think this is a thing people struggle with is like they, should they go to grad school or not go to grad school? I went when I was older. I went when I was 28. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated going to grad school because it gave me two solid years to just focus on what I needed to do in the studio and be surrounded by the people that I could get feedback from and sort of riff off of that. What was your choice to actually, why did you decide if you were already showing to go back to grad school? I think I realized that the goal of being an artist is more than just showing. Yeah. So working with Perez was really eye-opening because my show with him was in 2003, and by 2005, it was almost like that gallery was the one of the top emerging galleries uh, in Los Angeles. And I remember going to, like, maybe it was the first or second art fair Miami Basel ever, um, with, like around you were 2004 or 2003, something like that with Perez and just like going to every single party and being like, oh, we're we're on top right now yeah. or something and having that feeling and, and just being in, in the art fair and seeing what the market was up close and just having this understanding of how galleries and markets work and being excited to be part of a gallery. But all that stuff is really fun to party and like be seen and but it's also it's not really making art and so I some of the things that I saw at the art fair I was like I don't know what this is what it like what's the point of it or what yeah that just the objects so yeah. it's like it just became tons of objects that um, people were collecting for reasons that I wasn't quite trusting yeah so you know, in a way, it's kind of devastating to go to an art fair, right? For artists, artists complain about this all the time. Yeah. Oh, I hate art fairs, blah, blah, blah. Because it's not, that's not why you make work, hopefully. I mean, that's a judgment on my part. But like, that's not why I was making work. And so, but what it did leave me with, even though it was really fun to work with Perez for a couple of years, is that I kind of, I had this writer's block where I, I just didn't know what I wanted to make. And I think it's because I didn't have enough time in the studio to think about art in a way. And I was exposed to all these other aspects um, that didn't really have that much to do with what I was trying to do in the studio. I find that it took me becoming a part of a gallery to sort of figure this out. 
for me, it took me a few years after having a gallery to temper my expectations of what I was expecting out of that relationship and really be more focused on making work in the studio and producing for me, not for somebody else. I think that the that's just a main lesson. That's been a main lesson for me. Like I remember the day after my first solo show, just feeling so surprised that my entire life was not suddenly different. <laughs> like Clear, I was just the right? same there, person no- <laughs> after, and I worked so hard to get this first solo show, and I did the first solo show, and the day after the opening, I was like, like, oh, I'm still the same old and me. And you're like, so, now what? So it's what? like trying to get the, you know, goals are really interesting because you kind of work towards these goals, and you achieve goals, but then in the next day, after you achieve the goals, you still have to make your bed. You still have to you still have to face yourself in the you studio. You got to pay the bills. I got to figure out how to so, make get the money for the next show I want to put together still. You had an interview that I had read and it's available on your website. So everybody should check it out, but it's um with Rita Gonzalez. Yeah, I was going to say with Rita Gonzalez and it's a very nice descriptor of your practice. And it goes over like a, a swath of of time too. There's a large grouping of works in there that you talk about. I've written down a couple things and some of these things we can riff off of anywhere you want to go. Okay. But what I thought was interesting was, and I, it didn't click. I went through your CV as soon as I read this, but you worked with Jackie Windsor. Yes. Okay. So Jackie Windsor was at SVA in the grad program. When I was there, she must've been doing undergrad or what was she doing? How did you meet Jackie Windsor? Yeah, she was my teacher. An amazing artist. And she's an amazing artist, but also a person that is underrepresented in the history books of what she was making when she was making the work at least my feeling I think she had went at the time she was making her work early on I think she did have a lot of attention around her and a lot of projects but since she has institutional support but that institutional support is from very much a long time ago and her influence probably isn't as remembered as it should be I I would like to talk about her a little bit if Uh you could just speak to her practice and why she was an influence on you you didn't go into that a lot in the interview, and I, she wasn't one of my main professors at SVA. She was a cursory person in the studio. She was, on, she was actually on my thesis review at the very end, and was lovely, and, but also sort of a hard ass. So She is really interesting, and I wish that I had helped her with her sculptures, but what I was doing when I was helping her is I was her archivist. So what? Oh, you worked with her in the studio? No, I did not. I wish I could say I worked with her on in her studio making things, but I did not help her making things. But you were I was archiving her archivist. You were working for her though. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I met her, you know, she was my teacher and then the, that was the way I was supporting myself during art school was being a studio assistant and it was also really useful because I was like I'm going to be an artist, but I don't really know what that is and being a studio assistant got me into different people's studios and I could just see different examples of how p- people dealt with setting up a studio and solving the problem of how to live your life as an artist. And Jackie's work, I think I absorbed so much of it just through like organizing her slides and her well, You probably saw so many of these things. And um, the thing about her work is that um, so much of it took place outside she was doing things like gathering fallen trees and tying them up or being outside to get materials and bringing them back into the studio to work with or making something and then putting it back outside. And then I also saw how involved with um, a certain idea of, I don't want to call it perfection, but like she had a, a very sure sense of what the form had to be. I mean, I was 22 when I was working for for her, and the idea that she would make something two or three times before... The same piece? The same piece before it was actually right was crazy to me, especially going to school in this era of de-skilling, like the 1990s was all about kind of like dealing with failure and the materials kind of like misbehaving and like just Getty making Saboni. something about it. Like let it fall out of a package and all of a sudden that's the piece. Right. Jackie's approach is so different because she was like her focus on process like the steps you take to make a sculpture had was so exact and 
conscious, self-conscious that in order, she, it's like she had to understand how the piece was made completely by making it once or making it twice. And then finally the third time with all that, un- with the weight of all that understanding, the piece finally comes into being in the way that it's supposed to be. So I have, into being. I have a couple questions on this. Uh-huh. One deals with you, one deals with Jackie. Uh, I'll deal with the you first. Okay. And it's a bit about me too, because I, in my studio practice, I've said this before on the podcast, I have to make a lot of bad work to get to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's not even necessarily, it's like sitting with a piece and realizing that I put this thing here and three days later, oh no, that can't go there. Or even a year, I've had a piece I worked on for a year and just set it on the top of the shelf, and then I came back to it, and I was like, nope, that has to be cut off, and then the piece is done. Mm-hmm. So it's that time in the studio to be able to spend with all the bad stuff to get to the good. Do you do that in your studio? Do you have to go through things that don't work to get to the stuff that does? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not everybody's like that. Was that something that was reflective, do you think, from seeing what I Jackie just was think doing? That, no, I think from it's just from experience, like... I, when I was making work, when I was in my 20s, I was like, do people really know what's the difference between a good piece of art and a bad piece of art? Maybe people don't really know. And so I would try, I would like show work that I had a feeling wasn't my best work. On purpose? Just because I was like, I can't tell, (laughs) maybe. Like, maybe this is good, maybe this is bad. And I, and, and after over time, I just realized, well, actually, I'm not always right, too. Like, what is good? What's bad? I think it does take time to realize the value in a piece. I'm starting to, like, get trapped in something because I feel like... Uh, With what? With I'm, your... tr- I'm talking about two different things. Like, one is a very conscious making that I learned from Jackie. And two, on the other hand, I think sometimes the thing that you think is not that good actually is good. And I don't know how to explain that. No, I totally understand what you're saying. (laughs) Sometimes you have a feeling about something and you know when it's hitting. And sometimes the thing that you think is really good actually (laughs) is like the cliche thing that you already, it's like the safe (laughs) thing. And time can change your outlook on if something is good or bad. Yeah. Because, and that was another lesson that I learned from working with Perez, showing um, at a young age, I just saw like how the culture can change suddenly and then we need different art. For example, like the market crash of 2007, 2008. So the work that people were really buying and so into that costed six figures work by Terence Coe and work by Banks Violette. Um, Rudolf Stengel. Those things after the stock market crashed, the artworks themselves seemed kind of overinflated or not important suddenly. And that was a really intense yeah. time for art because um, then suddenly what we need is some, is completely different as a culture or what we're looking for because I think there's a you have to, changed in the studio though too as an artist I think it's 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 a difficult proposition to not have the work adjust according to what's happening in outside of the studio sometimes as well too to be reactionary toward a political situation or a social situation where I find that I want to be reactionary sometimes and change the focus of where the work is going or what the direction of the work is because of that situation. And I don't, I don't know if this is a correct choice or not a correct choice. This is something I struggle with personally. Do I do that or do I not do that? I tend to feel like um, you just have to make, or what I do is I just make the work that I need to make in the moment and just try to be as conscious of myself in this moment all the time with an understanding that interest in my work will wax and wane like people will feel like they need it at certain points and there might be times when people don't need it as much and they're looking at something else but it's just the way it works yeah just an understanding of like that's it's just part of a roller coaster and as an artist we're just making work for a very very long time and it's not like it's going to be we're going to be like loved the whole time or hated the whole time. It's just going to be, you just, so you just have to make the work you're going to make. Well, and it's a bit like what we were talking about before with the gallery too. There's no resolution. You don't get to something and think that, okay, everything's, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. It's a continued growth 
and understanding through the process of just making in the studio the entire time regardless. Yeah. Right. You said something in this interview with Rita as well. You were talking about Rodin, but you were talking about the activation of space and how what, one of the things you learned about sculpture, and we could talk too a bit about performance work here as well, how an object or a sculpture should be activated in the round. Mm-hmm. For me, I came to sort of that conclusion through uh, Anthony Caro. And I couldn't figure out why a specific Caro piece was, it seemed like it was larger than what it should have been. And what I found out was that the negative space that you were seeing and looking through these large Caros, it was activating a very large swath of space around the object and changing it completely every time you walked around it in this way that I totally didn't understand at the time. And this wasn't that long ago. But then looking at performance as well, and I started looking at Noguchi and Martha Graham and how those Noguchi sculptures are not activated until the dancer comes within the space and starts playing with that object in a way. Because as the viewer, you can't walk around the thing in the round, but you can watch somebody do it. So your work, a lot, a lot of the things that I've seen, they ask for people to approach, to walk in the round, to sort of, and I'm specifically thinking about the, the mirrored pieces that you built that went to Aspen Museum mm-hmm. and, and those type of things. You, will you talk to me a bit about what your thinking is on activation of objects? And by the way, this is totally me geeking out because... I it, mean, this is, the, this is the place to geek out, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now's your chance. You have to I get as nerdy as possible. I, I do not get very many opportunities, especially <laughs> with sculptors that I respect and the work that I respect, to have these conversations. So, When I make a sculpture, I am taking it for granted that or I am underlining the fact that we are bodies in space and we have weight and the room has dimensions and we are of a certain material, the sculpture is of a certain material. And I mean, this all sounds really basic, but I'm trying to bring those things to the front. Like it's, it's about materiality and weight kind of interfacing with something you say real you say something this is something i'm pulled toward as far as materiality you let these imperfections in the material show through often because you think that well i'm not going to impose what you think what i was reading was and what i interpreted was there's a history in that object and that history is has a richness this is sort of what i think about sometimes when i'm thinking of sculpture you mean like the genes that i use or something like the Uh genes or you talk about a cord and how that Mm -hmm. kink in the cord Mm -hmm. that it came from a store but it had that kink in it you're not Mm -hmm. taking the kink out you're letting that thing show because that is history the how does that i mean these are all reflections on what you're thinking about I am trying to let the thing be the thing that it is. Right. And so this is where we enter kind of like like a place of philosophy and, you know, I guess ontology. So to the, the work that I'm making has a lot to do with or everything to do with like allowing, trying to allow the, the materials I use to show through or be one of the main characters of what's happening in the moment as well as the viewer being a main character, if that makes sense. It does. So there's this action of performance in the viewer participating with the object. I guess, I mean, I did, I just said main character. I don't think I've used that language before, but yeah, I mean, and that's maybe another thing that I, I, um, we can go back to Jackie Windsor now because a sculpture that she made of like a two by four with, thousands of nails hammered into it until you can't see the two by four anymore. When you see that on the floor, it's just about this idea. All I can think about when I see that on the floor is like somebody nailed all those nails into this two by four to the point of like beyond exhaustion, beyond um, pain. I mean, Jackie Windsor would would walk around with these like wrist braces on her arm. Uh, risk because she had like two or three carpal tunnel surgeries you know she just these kind of repetitive gestures um, that she made in order to make her work it's like how many times she had to repeat that action kind of builds until that's it's the action that you see when you see the sculpture so performance and objects and, and those type of things if you're talking in a Gucci and a Martha Graham the action is taking place in front of you the Jackie Windsor the action is taking place somewhere off screen. 
right? Like, the, da- the action took place and the work is the result of the action. Right. So when you're creating your work, do you think it's important to have that action take place in f- with the viewer there? Or do you want to cease? Do you want to combine those two things and have the action take place someplace else? Like, well, obviously, like when I sh- when I'm performing with my works, I'm have I'm I'm doing it both ways, right? But there's going like to be a residual the- effect afterwards, though, too. When you're gone, that work still sits there, like the mirrored right. pieces, or right. So maybe it it works both in all ways. three ways. Do you <laughs> or need multiple ways? And I guess this two. is another thing too, because I couldn't, I didn't see this. So maybe it exists, or maybe it doesn't exist documentation of the performance with the objects and the works oh you can see it on venmo okay so yeah well this is i didn't you have to it's hard it's buried i'm not venmo vimeo vimeo i do that too (laughs) you can't send don't send money through it (laughs) like i do the same thing okay you've recorded your performance with the objects in space that recording is it just a documentation of something that took place in a period of time do you use that as an artwork ever or not have you ever thought about that? It's a documentation. Okay. And when I do these, when I did the performance in Aspen, and I've worked with Flora Wiegman three times, and you know Flora, right? She's, I do not. She's an artist and a choreographer, and she, uh, her work, work will be in, in uh, the next Made in L.A. at the Hammer that's opening, oh, yeah. I guess. Soon. Three weeks. Soon. Two yeah. weeks. Yeah. So she's in that. And she was also... Um, is she doing a performance piece, or what is she... She's a dancer, so I mean... So she's do, doing movement, um, and I like to work with her because I don't come from, you know, I come from, a, like, a, my practice is more sculpture with an awareness of movement and body, and she works directly with her own body and other bodies. So uh, when I work with her, I get to just practice moving consciously around things, and that's sort of what we do. It's almost like we're trying to demonstrate the sculptures in a way we can reveal more things about the sculptures while we're moving around them. And also, it's, it's, I think of them as thought of that performance in Aspen as like a demonstration to viewers of how much you can walk around participate sculptures you don't have to stand from afar and view it yeah and i think that people need reminding because we uh just look at our phones all the time so actually we don't have that much experience relating or consciously relating to things in space so if i'm i'm looking at an image right now on the computer and it's it's from the uh installation space in the back of various small fires Mm -hmm. it looks like that's correct right yeah, the sculpture courtyard. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the thing that strikes me about what you just said in this is that these plinths on the ground are made of everyday, they're, they're cinder blocks. Uh-huh. They're everyday objects. So like if I'm looking at that, it allows me to approach that more than a regular plinth would. Are you conscious and sort of considering how those objects, I mean, obviously you are, but work in terms of like the approachability of the object? Like something like that? That's definitely, I mean... Obviously, yes. Am I reading too but, much into it? No, of course not. You can't, I mean, this is art. You can't read too much into it, right? It's like, I, we uh, could just talk for I could be projecting. 50 hours. You might be projecting, but I, I kind of, I think my work invites projection and it invites personal association. The forms are kind of reduced yeah. so that they leave space for people to, to respond and bring their own experience to at the same time i feel like the forms are very specific we can circle this back around then to my very inept description of the early the the work that i've seen on instagram now right okay the the fingers the Uh things the objects hanging from them on the walls Uh how do those come into play with the studio practice as being performative and how do you draw people into those objects that are on the wall then is that the intent of the object or not? Because the activation of space and how you, you deal with an object, in a lot of these, you want people to sort of walk around to view it in different... But when you're... This sense of like putting it directly onto a wall changes that reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting distinction. You can't walk around it. It's true. But it is 50 pounds of clay... It's very tactile. ...on a wall. So that is in itself like a material experience to stand in front of 50 pounds of clay. There's a weight to the object. 
there's a weight to the object. A, a lot of the slabs, uh, slab pieces have color mixed into the clay, so kind of an intrinsic color, which is a sculpture nerd kind of desire, <laughs> like to be no, against know, painting yes. something yeah. and to allow the material the color of the material to be the color of the piece. So it was important to use enough mason stain to dye the clay the color that it would ultimately be. Um, but I did, I mean, this, this show that I had at, at Karen Lovegrove in, in 2007 was all was a lot of wall works. So Similar to these? I, it, they're related. Okay. Um, we can look at a picture of one if you want. Or Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So looking at these pieces from what year is this? 2007. So Art Forum has a picture of one of these works and there's an article on it from Karen Lovegrove Gallery. Uh-huh. They have objects hanging off of them, much like the works, the more recent works do. But the, the objects hanging off of these are more textile based, right? Or not? I'm still <laughs> using jeans and, and there's ties that are hanging. But I will say that how it relates to sculpture, even though it's on the wall, is that like when you, when you make a sculpture, it's always an, a huge issue. How does it exist in the room? Is it going to go on the ground? Is it going to go on a plinth? Is it going to hang on the air from fishing wire? No, because that's always the bad move. Nobody wants to hang a sculpture in the air using fishing wire. It's like <laughs> like super uh, I've actually never considered bad that. move. Yeah. This show that we're talking about from 2007 was called Hook and Eye. And, a, and you know, like an eye hook in, in a garment is yeah. that kind of thing that c closes a cardigan or something. So I was thinking about making a sculpture that hangs on the wall, but you can see how it hangs. So I made these hooks that were like fingers. Um, it was a, it, I got a, a finger, actually just a finger hook from a, a joke store in New Haven when I was traveling and I cast it in different colors and hung my sculptures from it. And then the sculptures themselves also had hooks on them. So things could hang off of those. So it's almost like a daisy chain of hooks. That's why the show is called Hook and Eye. The, um, the Art Forum article says, uh, Suhoi's exhibition titled Hook and Eye consists of 13 ceramic wall hangings suspended from whitewashed plywood walls that encircle a freestanding sculpture made of denim, logs, flocking, and foam. Just to give you a description for those listening. Do you still work with denim or not? Yes. So the thing that I've, I've noticed as I've been about my own work as I've been making it for almost 20 years now is that I have a, a wide variety of forms that I come back to again and again. So... I think I talk about that a little bit with Rita, like the, there's these kind of faceted orbs that I make. There's these kind of mirror blobs, which is like a face with that is a blank face that's like a mirror yeah, or yeah, a yeah. hole or an opening. And then like this kind of blob shape, which I don't know how to be more specific about. Um, <laughs> then there's like a, a loop form. And the loops I love. Thank you. The loops are really, really nice. I love all of it, but like the loops, every time I see a new one, I'm like, oh, oh, they function in a way. They're so simple, but they pull it all together really, really well. What's it? The thing, it is what I like. Okay. <laughs> it, is a, it is a prescribed notion of what I like in okay. sculpture, <laughs> right? I can't, I can't tell you. Like for me, it's just, I know when personally I feel like a sculpture works. Mm -hmm. I'm incredibly... Uh, particular about sculpture because I'm a sculptor and I think there's a lot of bad sculptors. I think there's a lot of I, So can we talk about that more? I want to hear like what because I think what you're talking about in a way is like form formal Yeah, of course it is because I'm I'm, I, I'm a formalist. I don't believe that you can separate form from content. No, you can't. So okay, so this is where I come the first thing I always look at, and maybe everybody always looks at, is form in an object, right? I, I think when you approach something, the, the first prescribed notion of whether something is working or not working, often, not always, is form and composition and how things are being put together. But see, here you're using, um, we're looking at uh, rows of, of found objects in your studio, like... There's a lot of content in each of There's those things. There's a ton things. of content. Okay. So this is where it comes into play. And this is something I often talk about in my studio visit is 
for me to get to the point of where I could add content and I had to let the content go first. Mm -hmm. I was too worried about forcing content into the objects and trying to make something read a very certain way. And when I was able that's to, a good point. When I was able to reach a place where I devalued things in a certain night, this is what I say in the studio. So if I pick up two objects and one, if I go get an object and one is worth ten dollars and one is worth five cents, I'm going to want to use the ten dollar one first because I'm placing a value system on it. Mm-hmm. And there's another value system where if this one object reminds me of my father and the other one doesn't, I'm going to want to use the one that reminds me of my father, even subconsciously. I have this. But if you are kind of trying to allow more even more stuff in you would maybe try to not so all hold of, back of all those well here's the judgments here's, before and let well here's just the, make something and then figure it out well later. here's the trick to all of this though is that my father-in-law sends me all these objects so i get boxes of objects and i don't know what i'm getting so when i open them the automatic value system that i would immediately place on it isn't there to begin with And it allows me to look at things in a very formal perspective to figure out where I stand just on a particular object in one. You know what it does is it like if you go into a paint store and somebody gives you like 10 different samples of paints, you're going to have a hard time picking what sample you want to use. If you have three samples, you can narrow down where you need to be and sort of at least figure figuring things out. And for me, I think that's what that does. It narrows down my focus of where what direction I need to go. I had, and I think I've talked about this on the show before, but I I have talked about it in the studio often. The best advice I ever got in graduate school was from this, and maybe you know him, uh, Lucio Pazzi. Oh my God. Do you know Lucio? I worked for Lucio for a very long time. Did you really? Okay, so the absolute best advice I ever got from him back in 2007, he walked into the studio, and you knowing him will probably reflect on this a little bit. But I was like, Lucio, okay, man, I've got, I've got these three ideas. I have this idea over here to the left, and I've got this idea over here to the right. But this, this idea right here in the center, this is great. And he's like, Jason, stop. Just shut up. He goes, say no more. He's like, basically, here's the deal. Pick one. It doesn't matter which of those three that you pick. Do it. Inevitably, what's going to happen is those other two ideas that you didn't pick are going to infuse themselves into the one you did. You can't help it. It's just going to happen. And it's going to make that one idea you did pick better in the end. But until you start, you're never going to get to the end. That made me uh, really miss Lucho. He was such a nice force in my life and I think in a lot of people's lives. It, it just He was so pragmatic about just thinking about how to produce, at least for me in that moment, that when I look at, now when I look at these sculptures and I'm thinking formally and I'm letting myself step back and not place these values on something right away because I don't want to influence how I'm going to make all of those things that I've been looking at and studying and trying to figure out, domesticity, family, all that content that I I was trying to force in there before, it's an automatic. You can't force content. You just have to be yeah. open to it. And for me, it took that sort of step back from the object to be able to do that because I'm, mm-hmm. a, very, I'm a very rigid person where I, I sort of line things up. This is how they're going to be. This is where I'm going to put the direction in and to like allow freedom. And it was scary. So that's where I sort of, when I'm looking at things and when I'm thinking about objects or like that it factor of what's working and what isn't working, I can't always place it. Like what you were talking about earlier, sometimes, you know, it's six months to a year down the road before I figure out why I made something, Mm -hmm. you know, it's this interpretation of like why something works later, you figure it out later than, than where you're at right now. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that's where I'm at in thinking about what how things work and why I approach things formally. And also it's taken me a very long time to be okay with the fact that other people are not like me. I was very judgmental of work often because I didn't think it fit into the boundaries of what I would do. And to be the artist, to look at something and think that it's okay when it's not what I would do was hard for me as well too. One last thing. Okay. I wanted to talk about a little bit about family. Okay. So as a parent and I, as a parent, I have my kids in my studio all the time. And they're always sort of helping making work and that type of thing. Do you, and it's changed how I think about the work. Has that changed for you as well or not? I never have my kids in my studio. You don't. Okay. This is, <laughs> this is why I want to know. This is like, this I'm is a different perspective. Strict. How come? And if my studio door is by accident open, they run in. They're just like, what is in here? Because you are, I'm never allowed in here. Like, what are you doing? But they know what a sculpture is. But I just felt that, and it for me, I needed to, one, 
the things that I, I leave everything all over the floor. I can see here that you are more neat unless you cleaned up for me. I did clean up for you. Okay. Um, so I can't, you know, like I'm, there's razor blades, there's like, you know, tacks and my, my children are three and a half and seven and a half. So that's the practical, uh, but also just, I feel like I just need that. You need that separation of space. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my studio is at home, so it's it, tough. It's there. It's, it's in, in mixed in with everything, but I, I, I do kind of hold a line. I never felt that I could make work at the same time as having kids around because I felt like my attention was well this is true um you know split divided yeah but I'm trying to kind of like be more open-minded about that because I think um sometimes the right sometimes the right decision does come from an, a space of extreme concentration but also when you've made that decision maybe after having enough experience in the studio my you know making the work i make like i should just be able to trust that i can execute uh, i think with the, half attention but i kind of don't trust that well i had i think this is a this is a perspective issue too i think between the primary caregiver in a family and a secondary caregiver if my wife had a studio back here I don't know if she could have them in here while she was making work because she needs a separation of space more than I do because she is with them more often than I am. And I think it, that is a direct effect of her being a primary caregiver, I think, in a, a lot of the space that we have. I think the other thing for me is that what changed my perspective on having the kids in the studio is I made a piece for a show I had in like 016 and my son came into the studio and was playing around with one of the objects I was making and I was still trying to figure it out. And I was, I was on like a, a Skype call or something with somebody and they were looking at me and I, in the background, my son was putting a ball on like one of my pieces and they're like, what is he doing back there? And I turn around and look and he had placed the object exactly where it needed to be. And I didn't even think about it or approach it until he did that. And it was this sort of fresh idea of having somebody so innocent from but knowing that that thing had to be there that I just sort of after that I had to like check myself I think that's a really great story and a really beautiful lesson it's not for everybody but I think that the answer the solution for a piece can come from anywhere I think that's it right I think we can leave on that note okay <laughs> yeah Anna thank you so much for coming to the studio this is really nice mm -hmm.